0: You have to be selective about your interventions, and even an IV in a pediatric patient may be traumatic.
1: Hi, this is Shafali, and you're listening to Pete's Admit. This week, we're sitting down with one of our favorite recurring guests, Dr. Dennis Wren, He is a Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellow in our emergency department, and our topic today is ED workflow. So the ED in particular can be a daunting environment. It's really unlike any other place in the hospital, and the goal of today's episode is really to give you guys some concrete tips on how to make your time in the ED as efficient and as clinically fulfilling as possible. Let's get started.
2: We are here today with Dr. Dennis Wren, a former children's resident and a current ED fellow, and he's going to talk to us about ED workflow. Thank you so much for joining us, Dennis.
0: Thanks for having me back, guys. It's great to be back.
1: You might be our first recurring guest, which is a huge deal. (laughs) He really really is a recurring segment. We want to have you back for a
2: third episode on bronchiolitis, but in in the meantime, we're happy to be doing this.
0: (laughs) Does that mean that I get get additional bonus points, brownie points?
1: We'll, we'll create some kind of frequent flyer reward system.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: <laughs> Five punches buys you a free coffee.
0: I could get behind that. I could definitely get behind that.
1: All right. So today we are here to talk about the, uh, the place that you currently thrive in, and that is the emergency department. A pretty daunting place for, I think, any resident, but particularly our new interns. And today we're going to basically walk through some Tips for workflow in the ED and how to approach patients that come in through the door?
0: Yeah, and I still remember my first day as an intern was in the emergency department. And that was after not really having practiced medicine for close to six months. So it definitely has the potential to feel overwhelming, but the emergency department remains, in my clearly completely unbiased opinion, the best place in the hospital. Um, it's truly a rarity that I finish a shift in the emergency department and not learn at least one new thing. And I'd like to think that I've gotten a bit more efficient since the first time I ever set foot in the ED. So I'm here to share some helpful tips that will hopefully improve efficiency and allow people to have a better time.
1: Awesome. Can't wait to get started. So let's walk through what the patient first sees when they arrive in the ED. Where do they go?
0: So from an ED flow standpoint, the first stop that the patient makes is at check-in, which we call Pivot at Children's National. Uh, This is where they are first registered into our system. So that way we can actually put in orders, write our notes, look up their past medical history if they have ever been there before. And this entire process, I definitely have to give kudos to the nurses because they really have to decide whether or not this patient is sick or not sick based on very little information.
2: Oh, wow. That's a lot. How do they make that decision?
0: So the next step for them is to go through triage where they're assigned a triage level that is based on a couple things. One is the acuity. How soon do they need to be seen? Second is their risk of getting sick or decompensating. And then third is resource use. What, what additional imaging tests will this patient likely need?
1: And just to clarify, this is a nurse looking at a patient making these decisions within the matter of a couple of minutes. Is that right?
0: Right. So they're asking them very brief questions and making this decision.
1: Wow, wow. That is, you're absolutely right. That is uh, incredible. It's <laughs> true, sick or not sick. So every ED has a specific triage system. It usually includes some combo of numbers, colors, things like that to signify the level of acuity. Can you walk us through ours?
0: So I'll start by saying that there are a lot of triage systems that are out there, but we use something called the emergency severity index, which is really five different levels. One is the most urgent. So in our color coded, these are patients that will be highlighted in red, and then it reaches all the way to five, which is the least urgent patient.
2: And so You've got your your greens and your blues which are usually um like of course could be sick but are usually a little bit more routine um you could sort of walk to the room. You've got your reds where I feel like you an attending is already there as soon as you find out that the patient is is in the ED and then and then your yellows which like within a certain a certain time frame they have to be seen. Right? You right. Know, like sort of like you want those kids have a resident hustling to their room as soon as they get roomed.
0: Right, absolutely. And Again, I think we have to keep in mind as providers, our triage nurses are doing the absolute best job they can based on such little information, but sometimes these triage levels can be misleading in the sense that you can have somebody that is potentially triaged a little bit lower on the severity scale and actually is very sick because maybe in the course of Going from triage to the actual room, maybe things have have changed.
1: Which is why it's so important to get your own assessment and ask your own questions and not necessarily be too swayed by what color you're seeing in front of you walking in. Yeah.
2: So after they're triaged, then where do you guys place them?
0: So usually in triage, that's where we get our first set of vitals and then the patient is roomed. And they are then seen by one of us as a provider. And then finally, after we do whatever workup evaluation assessment, then we have to decide this position. Am I sending this patient home? Are they going to the PICU or just the regular floor? Or do I have to transfer this patient
1: somewhere else? Gotcha. So now let's kind of go into the perspective of a resident walking into the ED for the first time. Um, Say I walk in, it's the start of my shift, I see a patient on the board that I want to pick up. What are the initial steps that I take when I assess the patient and what are some strategies that we can use to efficiently gather an accurate and complete history?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, because one of the things that blew my mind when I first started in the emergency department was how the attendings and fellows seemed to be able to juggle so many patients at the same time. They would spend less than half the time that I would spend with them and then somehow get more information.
2: Right? <laughs> Very relatable. And the, exactly.
0: I was just like, what? How are you doing this? <laughs> and I think this comes down to the idea of a focused history. And okay.
2: Play. So you... You're looking at the board, you're like, this patient is yellow and their respiratory complaint. How do you walk into the room, you know, without getting a full, like, broad H&P?
0: Yeah, so I think it's important to distinguish between the unstable and the stable patient. But that's one of the challenges that we have in the emergency department is to start an intervention for an undifferentiated, unstable patient based on very little history. I usually always start with an initial impression that's really in your pal's algorithm as well. And mm-hmm. these are all things that you can eyeball and it's based on three things. Number one, their consciousness level. Are they altered? Number two, their breathing. And then number three, their color or their perfusion. And again, all those things you can kind of assess from the doorway if you needed to. And then after that, it's helpful to use the sample mnemonic as a way to structure your history to try to get some of the more salient points. So S in the sample stands for signs and symptoms. A stands for allergies. M stands for medications that they might be taking. P stands for their past medical history. L is their last meal when the last time they ate was in case you need to do something with sedation. And E are the events leading up to the present illness or injury that they're presenting for.
1: Awesome. So that's like your really focused way to get the most pertinent information you need to get before you start making the next management decisions. So at this point, if you walk into a room, you do your brief assessment using all the criteria that you mentioned, and you maybe make the decision that this kiddo is a little bit more sick than you anticipated initially. Say, again, like you mentioned, it's a a green, but you walk in and you're like, this is more like a yellow. Um, At that point, history taking is going to be falling a little bit lower on your list. You're prioritizing your exam. You're escalating to your supervisors. You're putting orders in, things like that. But on average, when we walk into these rooms, the patients are stable and we have a little bit more time to think through maybe what their chief complaint is. What is my approach then? I walk in and I see a stable patient that's undifferentiated.
0: So for the undifferentiated, stable patient, you definitely have more time. And I think this is where You look at the reason for the visit or the chief complaint, and then you can look at any notes that the check-in or the triage nurses have written about this patient. So the differential diagnosis actually happens before you even lay eyes on the patient. You can start formulating that list. So then you go into that encounter when you actually see the patient already with a list of differentials in mind. And so again, I I just want to emphasize that I didn't realize this early on, but you should start formulating differential diagnosis before you even enter the patient's room. Mm -hmm. And that way, when you get into the room, all your questions and your physical exam Mm -hmm. can really be tailored to help you narrow down your differential and guide your Mm -hmm. management. Mm -hmm. And along those same lines, it's really helpful to know what are the red flag symptoms for the common chief complaints that you see.
2: So it's like you want to think about what you what it probably is you want to think about what you absolutely need to rule out for the patient and then there's all all the other things right and then it's sort of just like I'm just going to confirm for emesis for example that it's not first thing in the morning and associated with the worst headache of your life right like that you didn't and then and then you'll sort of lead yourself towards what it probably is is that what you're getting at
0: Right. So structuring your differentials. uh, Another mnemonic that I like is the spit mnemonic. So these help categorize all the things that you're thinking about S being what is the most serious, the things that I cannot miss. P is the most probable. So what do I likely think is happening with this patient? Common things being common. I is where you go for zebras and think about what's an interesting diagnosis that could be causing this chief complaint and then t is your treatable or your testable and and of course there is some overlap between all these but it's a nice way to think about all of the things going into the encounter
1: that really helps kind of boil it down because you can also get lost in the differentials
2: <laughs> right it's always a long list but those are a- the actionable ones right those are the ones that we care about ultimately
1: yeah So I have stress flashbacks, literally, to writing eight notes in a row at the end of my ED shifts when I was an intern, because I would just keep seeing patients (laughs) and not really sit down and document. So what are some ways that we can stay on top of documentation during a busy shift?
0: So I will tell you that it doesn't get any easier because now, instead of finishing eight notes at the end of my ED shift, I'm responsible for finishing my notes and then making sure the other 10 to 20 are accurate oh as well. Oh. So documentation is always, always a challenge in a very busy emergency department. The tips that I would have for the for documentation are having note templates or pre-completed notes for common complaints. And that way you can include the relevant medical decision-making processes in there. And you can also use auto-text to save time. If there's one thing that I would recommend documenting in live time as much as possible, it's the reassessments and the reevaluations, because it's so much easier after completing a shift to go back and have those all in there than to have to think back about, oh, what time did I go in and re-examine this patient or speak to a consultant? The rest, the physical exam, the history—chances are you will remember.
2: So you do sort of like a like you'll go in and re-examine, and then you'll hop, you'll you'll take care of anything when you're walking around. You hop back to the computer, like hit those times in and say what the kid looked like, and then and then sort of keep on doing your direct patient care, that type of thing, back and forth.
0: Right. I'll either document it in the computer if I have time, or I carry a piece of paper with me, and I will write it on that piece of paper at the time.
1: Yeah absolutely and those reassessments ultimately like you said are so important to kind of document what the course that the patient took while they were in the ED right so it's a great great point
2: so on most of my ED shifts i feel like when yeah it's like when you're following multiple patients at once um some are stable some are some are maybe worsening improving how do you how do you structure your list or really make sure that you all of your you're on top of all of your patient care tasks how do we not get behind on those
0: that is yet another challenging part of the emergency department is keeping track of everything that's going on and making sure that things are flowing. Uh, it's another key skill that I'm still trying to develop well myself. But essentially, mm-hmm. we're constantly thinking what needs to be done to determine a patient's disposition. One thing that I like to do is constantly update the ED board especially we have a section where you can put comments or a waiting for so that I can keep track of what needs to happen, but also to make sure that anybody else who is taking care of the patient also knows what those next steps might be. And if we're waiting for any labs, um, I also keep a checklist on paper as well. And I think the biggest key to making sure that things flow smoothly is Communicate, communicate, communicate.
2: Mm-hmm. All, yeah, like mostly verbal or direct communication when you're all basically in the same room, right? Just Absolutely,
0: and even if you're not in the same room, that's really how we keep the patient safe in the sense that we're sharing a mental model with the, all of the members of our team that can include your nurses, your respiratory therapists, any supervising fellows or attendings that you have, your residents, and, of course, the patient and their family, too, because if there is something that they're waiting on, it's nice to know mm-hmm. that they're waiting on something and you're not just going to disappear and ignore them for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if you have something that is super time sensitive task wise or a complex set of tasks that need to happen in a certain order, communicating that verbally is going to be much better than just putting in that order or writing it somewhere electronically
1: even mm-hmm. for like a dose of Tylenol, I feel like if it has to happen, you got to call the person who's going to make it happen. And that's going to be the nurse. Yeah. So
2: you can put like it no in. orders happen until the nurses yeah, know, right? But
1: particularly, you're right, like complex orders, labs, then imaging, things like that. It's definitely a phone call to close the loop. Um, and I'm sure I mean, gosh, I, I feel like we're running around and we know what we're doing. But I'm sure for families, it feels like, where'd my doctor go? <laughs> they were just here. <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. So keep, yeah. keeping the families updated, they always, always appreciate that as well. And, and again, just to echo your guys' point, during the course of an emergency department shift, you really can't expect anybody who is taking care of the patient to always be able to get back to their computer. So that's why that verbal communication is still so, so important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So kind of now getting to the workup part of it, I remember when I started residency down in the ED, and I remember being so intimidated when I was uh, like putting in orders for the first time. People were supervising me, but you don't have a senior watching over your shoulder as you're doing everything. Uh, And so it took a little bit of time, a few shifts to kind of get the hang of it. Is it ever okay to start working up a patient after you see them and maybe before you formally staff them with an attending or a fellow?
0: So I think that's highly dependent on your comfort level and the comfort level of the supervising physicians that you happen to be working with. I think that you should feel empowered to start workup on patients. And that's honestly one of the reasons why I loved the emergency department when I first started, because I really felt like I had the opportunity to develop these clinical decision-making skills and think about what I wanted to do as part of workup. And this is very daunting when you first start doing it but i think there's a couple tips that will hopefully guide you along and make things a little bit easier for you
2: yeah what structures are in place to sort of like protocolize things right because you see so many things right
0: and and that's where the clinical pathways or care sets come in most institutions have these clinical pathways and care sets that help us standardize care for again common chief complaints Mm -hmm. I would just caution to remember to review the inclusion and exclusion criteria for these as they may not apply to every single patient presenting with that same complaint.
2: Yeah. And they almost – they even have comments just like about recent evidence, right? Like they'll be like, consider – that, you know, a second a second bolus and sickle cell pain might not be evidence based or, you know, make sure that you think about X. It's there's like a lot of yeah. good information in there, even though it's just orders. Right? Absolutely.
0: They're great learning points uh-huh. from those order sets and pathways because they often do link you to, right to research paper. papers.
2: Yeah. mm mm-hmm.
1: Like literally, yeah. you. <laughs> I didn't realize this until second year. And I was uh, shocked to see how much great information you can get from those pathways. A lot of work goes into building these clinical pathways. They don't just materialize. There's so many providers who put their heads together and incorporate data and make them happen. All right. So we're we're using the clinical pathways. What else?
0: So the other thing in pediatrics is to remember to invest reduce the amount of invasive and possibly unnecessary interventions. One of my first shifts in the emergency department, I remember seeing a child with gastroenteritis and vomiting, and I thought, oh, I got this. And I ordered an IV fluid bolus. I felt pretty good about myself, patted myself on the back, and incidentally happened to be staffing with the division chief who was the attending at the time. And his first question to me was, did you trial. And I'm pretty sure I opened my mouth and immediately closed it because I felt like such an (laughs) idiot. But that's a lesson that I'll always take with me because you have to be selective about your interventions. And even an IV in a pediatric patient may be traumatic because you can't explain to them why they're being poked with something. And the other thing along those lines is I don't think you should be ordering radiology studies that are high radiation without talking to someone about it as well.
2: Mm, yeah. Even as a third year, I'm not ordering CTs without a conversation with the team, right? I'm not I'm not just ordering things, you know. My favorite thing about being in the ED is handing out apple juice or a bottle with half apple juice and half Pedialyte and then just like watching a kid's face light up. <laughs> or the
1: popsicles. I love giving them a popsicle. <laughs> You could do so much with that.
0: All non-invasive interventions that are very helpful for our pediatric exactly. patients.
1: <laughs> right? They really are. <laughs> this I feel like is such a golden rule. Yeah, I just think it comes up a lot. Like exactly what you said, Alice. Like we, it's important to think before you do anything—imaging, labs, whatever you want—even on the inpatient side. Think about it. Like, is it is it going to affect your management? What are the harms? What are the what are the benefits, etc.
0: Absolutely. I echo that same point. Always ask yourself, is my history and exam enough to make that diagnosis? And if I do get any workup, will those results change my management?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing I just thought of is if somebody's vomiting up a lot, maybe don't give them the cherry red popsicle because then when they vomit that back up, you can't. You can't <laughs> It wasn't such a popular flavor, I know. you know? <laughs> Why do we have it? We shouldn't have red colored things. No. I said that to Dennis, literally as an intern and he was like, "Dude,
2: calm down."
0: I said, "Calm down, have a popsicle."
2: <laughs> have a cherry t- <laughs> flavored dessert. <laughs> uh, but it, I cuz you know, it gets on our lips. Is it Kawasaki disease, you know? It
1: really <laughs> There's a lot of repair. <laughs>
0: If wiped off, it's probably
1: not (laughs) cowed off. Any other specific tips that you have about putting orders in in the ED?
0: So there's common orders, just like with clinical pathways and care sets. There are common orders that are programmed into most of the EMRs out there. The dosing, the frequencies for medication are standardized in order to help us minimize error and So you don't need to feel like you have to be reinventing the wheel every single time you order a medication. Mm -hmm. And especially for high-risk medications, it's never a bad idea to have a colleague double-check that order. Mm
2: -hmm. And then how do we... So we've ordered medications, we've ordered labs, we're starting to get things back and we're doing reassessments. How do we assess whether or not our interventions are actually working or actually helping?
0: So this is going to be a very common theme in the emergency department. It's just assessing, intervening and then reassessing and repeating that over and over. One of my mentors introduced me to this concept of the tripwire approach, which I find very helpful. In essence, we want to establish what we think is the diagnosis for a patient provide an intervention, and then reassess to see if that intervention worked the way that we intended it to work. And we obviously want to avoid any kind of anchoring bias.
1: Mm, So okay, I feel like anchoring bias comes up a lot in medicine. Can you explain that more to us?
0: Yeah. So for example, if a child presents with respiratory distress, and I think it's probably asthma, I might give them an albuterol nebulizer and see if that helped. If the intervention didn't really have its intended effect, I have to think about, well, why didn't this work? Did I not give a long enough treatment for this child? Is the asthma exacerbation just so severe that I need to give them more adjunct treatments? So if I still think that this is asthma, maybe I should give them a bolus, some IV magnesium, IV steroids, and then I need to reassess after those interventions again. But at some point, if there's still no improvement, I have to have my tripwire set. And then I need Mm. to decide that, okay, this still isn't working. And instead of hammering away at what I believe this child's presentation is asthma, I have to think, okay, what if it's not asthma? Mm-hmm. And I might be missing a myocarditis or some other reason why this child is in respiratory distress.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Gotcha. So it's something that you concretely like think to yourself, did my intervention have the desired effect? Like the hypothesis is your diagnosis and then testing it is the treatment and it either worked or it didn't. Right. Okay, that's good. Um, that's like, one of my hospital's attendings this month said, "If you can't find the diagnosis, you just need to go and HPI the family again and examine the family again. You don't need to be consulting and getting imaging." Right, and sometimes you, I think I need to hear more. And right, sometimes like, you
0: do need to start over for yeah. cases because you don't want to anchor bias, mm-hmm. and you have to remember this patient is still there. Nobody says that you have to get all of the information in one go. Mm-hmm. You can always go back yeah. and ask them some more questions.
1: Mm-hmm. Any other advice for residents in the ED? I think
0: overall, wherever you are, try to anticipate what needs to happen. So try to anticipate what the patient may need and what the next steps may be. So I'm constantly asking myself, where do I think this patient is going? How can I get them there in the most efficient way possible? And then along the lines of that, always have a backup plan in case things don't really go according to your plan. And when you're faced with something that is super, super confusing or complex, it's always helpful to talk it over with a colleague. And this can be another co-resident, a fellow, an attending. Just realize you're never alone. And attendings talk to each other all the time and ask each other for opinions. And I found out that these discussions that you have are really where I happen to learn the most because you're able to really ask your seniors, what is the thought process behind these clinical decisions that they are making? And you can incorporate that into your own practice.
1: Yeah.
2: And it's really, it's like the most fun part. Of, well, besides interacting with your patients, the most fun part of your job, right? Being like, like we're doing X, Y is Y happening. Or what would you do, right?
0: Absolutely. It's fun. Keep asking those questions.
2: All right. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, just for coming on and for talking about this with us. We think it's the ED is both the purest form of medicine and like the most disorienting place to be for the first time. Right. It's like, I don't want this to sound negative. We really love it, but it's,
1: it's tough. It's it's a hard place to start off, but it's a lot of fun also. And it's just so different from everywhere else in the hospital. Before we go, We can't forget our closing question, which we've asked you before, which is, uh, what's one thing you learned recently that you can't get out of your head? Or what's your favorite thing about being a PEM fellow?
0: Since I answered that first question the last time, I guess I'll answer the second part. So my favorite thing about being a PEM fellow, number one, obviously, is the co-fellows and the attendings that I get to work with and also all of the learners. It's so cool being in a setting where we have such a great opportunity to teach but also to learn from every single person that we encounter as well and, and you guys ask some amazing questions that oftentimes like i don't know the answer to and i have to look up so it keeps me humble it keeps me honest and i like being able to have those conversations about why people make clinical decisions and what their thought process is because that should be what you're learning throughout the course of your training. And somebody should be able to verbalize their thought process for you so that you can learn what you like and what you don't like doing.
1: There are so many great learners. They have so many great questions. I don't know the answers to a lot of them, but helping them work those out makes me a better doctor.
2: And the diversity of thought just provides better patient care, right? It it really does. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So a big, big thank you to all of our learners.
1: Well, thank you again for joining us.
0: You guys are welcome. Thanks for having me again.
1: All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope that you found that as helpful as we did. And we hope that you can put some of these tips to good use the next time you're in the ED. As always, you can find us online at pedsadmit.com. Connect with us on Instagram at pedsadmit or email us at pedsadmit at gmail.com. We are dying to hear from you. See you next time.